We're continuing our time in 2 Samuel this morning. We're going to begin at 2 Samuel 16, 15. We read from a section in chapter 18. We're going to be covering a little bit of ground here today. I don't know if you know anybody in your life who is, you would describe as determined. Do you know anybody in your life that you'd say they're a very determined individual? Grandson has been hollered out. We don't know the grandson, so yeah. Determined is a nice way of saying what? Stubborn, right, yeah. You know, it's, you know determined means, uh, you know, uh, you're willing to see a thing to its end, uh, sold out on what must be done, and a willingness to sacrifice. Have you ever thought of God as determined? God is determined. God is a determined individual. In fact, let me describe it this way, and this is the title of the message today, very simply, God's Determination. I have to read it so I get it right. Here's what I am thinking here. There is no determination as determined as God's determination. You may have met a lot of determined people. You have never met determined like God's determined. There is no determination as determined as God's determination. And I'd like us, as we take a few minutes to think about 2 Samuel, to find out that this actually is uh, extraordinarily comforting and helpful to us as believers. We pick up the story in 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 15. If you haven't been with us, what's been going on is Absalom, David's son, has taken over the kingdom of Israel. David His entire family, other than ten of his concubines, have fled the palace, have fled Jerusalem, have run due east, all the way to the Jordan River, which is a very long walk, mostly downhill, but through the wilderness nonetheless. So Absalom is in Jerusalem, sitting on David's throne. David is on the other side of Israel, preparing to cross the Jordan River. David has a number of loyal people with him, but Absalom, though, has, in fact, a number of very gifted and skilled people with him as well. And the first part of our uh, section of Scripture today is one of these that is a little bit disturbing, uh, but we have to understand this is an important thing to understand. So, first uh, thing we want to think about here is David's hope during a time of significant trouble. So Absalom was in Jerusalem, and uh, his advisors come to him, and Absalom speaks to a gentleman named Ahithophel. Ahithophel is a brilliant counselor and advisor. Any world leader would be fortunate to have his advice. He really never made a mistake in terms of judgment, in terms of strategy. So Absalom says to Ahithophel, what should I do next? I've taken over the kingdom. David has run. What is the next thing to do, and Ahithophel gives his advice, and it's uh, terribly despicable, yet for that time period, not terribly unusual. The normalcy of this action does not make it less despicable, but we have to understand this was routine for these periods of time. So Ahithophel said to Absalom, David left behind ten of his concubines. What you ought to do is set up a tent on the roof of David's home and sleep with them all. And this was a way that a new king would demonstrate that he has completely overtaken the old king. That he is the one, in fact, who is in charge. And in fact, 
Absalom follows his advice. Absalom follows his advice, and this is what Absalom does. He takes David's concubines, goes up onto the roof with a tent, and publicly sleeps with them. This here, in this moment, and certainly the news would have gotten to David very, very quickly, this would have been the low point for David. This would have been the bottom. Yeah, I'd say it's rock bottom, but he passed rock bottom some time ago. This is the one thing that once this has happened, there's the thought that would enter his mind that would say, you know what, I don't think I'm ever going back. I think I'm done. I think my life is going to end at the end of a spear or the end of a sword, likely held by my son Absalom. It's over. What could possibly be done now to get my kingdom back, seeing as how the current king can take for himself my wives? Not only, for that, not only that, but David likely and certainly had in his own heart and mind some sense of responsibility for what happened back in 2 Samuel 12. David was having a conversation with the prophet Nathan when Nathan revealed to David that God knew all about his affair with Bathsheba. A number of things happened as a result of that affair, but one thing in particular happened, and David is certainly remembering it. This is what God said to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did what you did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So this terrible thing has happened, and this terrible thing has happened because of and as a result of David's own actions and choices. So David's kingdom now appears to be forfeit. On top of that, this horrible abusive tragedy has occurred. And David has got to be wondering, what hope is there? What hope could there possibly be in this moment? The kingdom is forfeit. My wives have been taken in a horrible fashion. What hope is there? What did we start with this morning? God is determined. In fact, there is no determination as determined as God's determined. God's determination. And so God's determination, His willingness to be determined to have His will and purpose done in spite of what the situation looks like, gives David great hope during trouble. Even though his trouble is on top of his trouble, which is covered with more trouble, he can have at least hope that God's will and purpose will be done because God is just simply, well, can I say it this way? God is just that stubborn. He's going to get his thing done. There's no question about it. The direness and precariousness of the situation is not factor into God's problems because God is so determined. I think it's interesting something the Apostle Paul said over in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. beginning in verse 18. I don't know if you know where the Apostle Paul was writing Philippians from. He was writing it from a jail cell, from an imprisonment. Of course, he was wrongly imprisoned. He hadn't done anything that deserved imprisonment. He had merely proclaimed the name of Christ and had been imprisoned for it. And here is what he says during his trouble. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers 
in God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So he's rejoicing. The Apostle Paul is saying, in my trouble I have hope, and in fact I will rejoice, because what has happened to me will in fact turn out for my deliverance. Well, that sounds like good news, right? Anybody need deliverance today? You say, yeah, okay, let's keep reading. This is exciting. I eagerly, eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, I know I'm going to be delivered. My hope is in Christ alone, and in fact, I know I'm going to be delivered. No question about that. In fact, I can rejoice over that. There's two ways out of this prison cell, and neither one of them is a problem for me. What are the two ways that the Apostle Paul exits that prison? One is skipping out. The other is being carried out. And for him, no big whoop. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I die. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. So if he lives, what's good about it? Jesus. And to die? Well, that's even better. Because then we, I get to see him in person. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I keep on living in the body, it will be, mean fruitful labor for me. So the Apostle Paul had hope in the midst of his trouble because he believes. Now, this is a little crazy. Follow with me. Are you ready? Dead people come back to life. The Apostle Paul believes dead people come back to life. And so what's the problem with dying? Because if I am in Christ, dying is not a big deal because I will be raised again in Christ. His hope is that he will live again in Christ. Dying is gain because in Christ, he has hope in the resurrection in Christ. Christ is exalted in his life or in his death, and in that he finds hope. David also had a similar hope. David, in the midst of his trouble, had hope in the fact that God had made a promise to David. God had made a promise back in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne will endure forever, that David's son will sit on that throne, and that throne will endure forever, and his son will reign forever. So what does that mean David has to believe in if he believes that his son will reign forever? David also then believes the dead are raised. Because the only way for his son to live forever is if his son lives forever. And the only way to do that is for him to be raised from the dead. David had hope in the promises of God. And David had to ask himself this question at some point during this great time of trouble. Is God's promise true? Is God's promise to me true? Does, does, is God keeping His promise the way He said He would? Is God holding up His end of the bargain? I mean, if you were David, wouldn't that cross your mind? I mean, God says, your throne will endure forever. Now he finds himself hiding on the other side of the Jordan River while his son is sleeping with his wives. I mean, wouldn't it cross your mind? I mean, I, it would mine. Uh, God, just checking in. Things seem to be getting a little kooky. Not sure if you remember this, but you made a promise, and it feels a little weird right now. Is God's promise true? Is God really true to His promises to us in the midst of a significant, important, and a heart-rending trouble? 
David had to confront that issue for himself. We could ask this question about God's promises in the midst of trouble, and this would be the question David likely had to confront. What does it look like for God to keep His promise to me? If God is keeping all of His promises to me, how could I describe that? What would it look like in my life if God keeps all of His promises to me? Now, when God made that promise to David that said, your throne will never end, did David ever think that that promise would involve him running for his life from Jerusalem? He probably wouldn't have expected that. And in your own life, you say, God is faithful, God is true, He is keeping His promises, but you know what? I didn't really think it would look like this. I know God is faithful, I know He is keeping His promise, but this is much different than I anticipated. God's faithfulness to us may oftentimes come in surprising and unexpected ways, and I'm being generous there, surprising and unexpected, not like, yay, We were talking about this with uh, some folks before service. God's promises and His faithfulness show up in our life, and we pray that super powerful spiritual prayer. Have you ever prayed this one? You've heard me pray it. Really, God? Hmm. All right, you're in charge, but you know what? I'm going to tell you how to do your thing, but... His, his faithfulness is always true, but in the midst of trouble, it always confronts the reality that things didn't go the way we expected. God always keeps His promises. We have to understand that. His promises are always kept, but we have to understand something about God that's important. God has innumerable ways, innumerable ways to be faithful to His promises. He has millions of ways He can be faithful to His promise. We see one way that God can be faithful. We see one way. When we say, if God is true, then this must be true. And we see this one path. And God goes, that, that's one way. I can also do it a million other ways. Because it turns out He's smarter than we are. Having hope during trouble is relying on the promises of God and understanding that, that God's ways are, are going to be done. In fact, He is determined to have His good and faithful promises fulfilled in us and through us, even in the midst of terrible trouble, even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. David prayed a prayer during this time over in 2 Samuel 15. David, on his way out of town, heard that his advisor Ahithophel had abandoned him and was now serving the treasonous son Absalom, and David in 2 Samuel 15, 31, knew that Ahithophel's advice was always good, always powerful, always well thought out. And David prayed this. David had been, this is verse 31. David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Lord, in the midst of this trouble, I've got nothing. I've got no options. I have got nothing I can do. The only way this trouble turns out any way to be good is if you show up and you're determined to frustrate what's going on. If you're determined to do what is good and what is holy and true according to your promises, God, because David at this point has no options. If Ahithophel continues unstopped, 
Absalom's reign will be established. Hope and trouble is only the result of reliant understanding that God is dependable even in the most dire of circumstances and that God is able to faithfully uh, accomplish all of His good promises to us even in trouble, even in those times where we say we don't understand what God is doing. God is determined and that is our hope in trouble. Secondly, God is determined and that gives us power to serve. If you'll turn with me over to 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17 will pick up the story. Ahithophel then comes to uh, Absalom after Absalom takes his advice regarding uh, David's wives. And he gives him some additional advice. He said, listen, uh, Absalom, what you need to do is put together a group of men, 12,000 men in fact, and you need to pursue David like right now. David is running, he's turning tail and fleeing, and right now he is exposed and he is unprotected. If you're going to conquer David, now's the time to do it. Get your men together, run for the Jordan River, catch up with David. In fact, Ahithophel says you will not have to kill anyone other than David. Once David's dead, all the men will abandon and serve you. And as usual, this advice from Ahithophel was brilliant. It was absolutely perfect, spot on. Uh, Absalom should have followed his advice. But what happened is, Absalom then says, you know what, we'd better check with Hushai. I don't know if you remember who Hushai is. Hushai was also an advisor to David and was fleeing from Jerusalem with David. And David said to Hushai when they were fleeing, he said, you know what, Hushai? Go back and serve my son. Go back and serve my son. Ahithophel is going to be giving him advice, and Hushai, you're going to be there, and I want you to try and muck things up. That's in the Hebrew. I want you to kind of get in there and cause some ruckus. So Absalom calls Hushai in and says, Hushai, Ahithophel says this, we should get 12,000 guys right now and speed out to the Jordan River and get it on with David. And Hushai says, you know what, Ahithophel, usually a pretty smart guy, but you know, Swing for the fences, sometimes you're going to hit a home run, sometimes you're not. And in this particular case, uh, this is not good advice. What you need to do, Absalom, is you need to simmer down. You need to get yourself a big army. If you'll remember, Absalom, David is a pretty good fighter. And in fact, David is a good, really good fighter. All of his men who are with him are really good fighters. And now they're not only like good fighters, what are they? He says they're like a bear that has been cornered. You want to run out? And he said, besides that, David's not an idiot. His army is, is going to be out there ready to fight with you. David, he's going to be hiding in the back of some cave. And you're going to fight, and you're going to die. And even if you kill half the men, you will still not have caught David, and you will not accomplish your purpose. Hushai plays to the intimidation and the fear that would have been present in Absalom and his advisors. Absalom takes Hushai's advice. No, you're probably right. You're probably right. We should get a big army together and make sure that we're able to conquer David. In the meantime, Hushai goes to uh, the servant girl, and he set up a spy system. He goes to the servant girl and says, go tell the two priests' sons to convey this information to David. David, get across the Jordan, get safe. I don't know what uh, Absalom's going to do, but here's what Ahithophel told him to do. So the servant go, girl goes to the two priests' sons and says, you need to run to David and report this information. 
But one of Absalom's men saw the girl talking to the two sons. And so the two sons did what any normal person would do. They hid in a well. <laughs> it's what you do. And it's such a compelling uh, story. If you were reading it, you say, this is a fantastic story. It is a fantastic story. They hide in the well, and the woman who owned the home covered the mouth of the well, because the well would have been uh, level with the ground, covered the mouth of the well with a cloth, and then threw dirt and animal feed and whatnot onto it so you couldn't even see it. You, you thought Rambo did this first. No, no, no. You can't just turn it off. Okay. Um, they hide in the well. The guys come and look, they can't find him. Then they sneak out of the well and they sneak out and they tell David what's going on. And because of their willingness to put their lives on the line, David is able to get across the river. And it's all of this, the, the Hushai frustrating the plans and the two spies and the servant girl, all of this was put together by David. Earlier, several chapters ago, David on his way out was putting little pieces onto the chessboard, making his plans, making his uh, efforts to redeem and do the work of God despite the fact that everything was falling apart. But see, we might be tempted to say that all of this is happening because of David's brilliant strategy. David is a brilliant tactician, and he uses his relationships and his connections to maintain some power even in the midst of trouble. But that would be a complete misunderstanding of what God is communicating here. Look with me at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 17. It's just a whisper. It's, it's like the light shining through the crack in a doorway. And when, when you see it, you realize what's going on. Something's going on that is not apparent to everyone. Absalom and all his men said the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than that of Ahithophel. Listen, for the Lord had, what? Determined. The determination of God is more determined than any other determination, and God had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Who's going to bring disaster on Absalom? David? Now forget about it. It's not David. David's putting his strategies together, and David is working, and David is planning, but the power behind David's plans is the determination of God, the unstoppable determination of God. The result of this is not David's uh, good planning, although it was good planning. The result is God being determined to even use David's good planning. David had the power and the ability to serve and put these plans together because he knew God was behind it. It's not the reverse, where David put together good plans, and God goes, oh, man, I think we got a shot. All right, thanks, thanks David, I'm in. No, David put his, the power behind David's effectiveness. It's God's determination. Again, to return to the Apostle Paul just for a minute, over in Acts 21, we see a similar thing in his life. The Apostle Paul had determined that he was going to go to Jerusalem, and he was going to share the gospel, on his way, this is verse 10 of Acts 21, they'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us, he, that is Agabus, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and his feet with it. The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
when we heard this and the people uh, that were with us, they pleaded with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 13 of Acts 21. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He would not be dissuaded. Paul knew and understood the Spirit was calling him to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul knew and understood the Spirit had determined for him to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, and he was uh, understanding he would be arrested there for it. And he says, I've made my plans. I am determined with God to participate in what he is doing. And that means I'm going to get arrested and probably I'm going to die. He saw the determination of God and the movement of God and he said, that gives me the power I need to engage with him through service and through obedience. We can say it perhaps this way. God's determination to get his purpose done, his will done, is the fuel uh, for our obedience. God makes a promise to us, and we, aren't, uh, we don't serve God in faithfulness to find out if He's going to keep His promise. In fact, we serve God because He is faithful to keep His promise. The Apostle Paul is not going to Jerusalem to test and see if God is going to be faithful. What? He's going to Jerusalem because God is faithful. And in fact, he would say God is faithful even up to and including the moment of his death. God's determination is our power and our fuel and the source of our service to God as Christians. We trust God, not the results of what we do. We trust God, not the outcomes of the things we do. We trust God because we know that no matter what happens, God is the one who will in fact have the victory. Has anybody ever shared the gospel with somebody and with somebody and just completely fell flat on your face? Like you shared the gospel with them, and by the time you were done, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, that's how bad it was. They literally went from atheist to a heretic because of the result of your gospel proclamation. Was that a waste of time? Did you ruin? God's redemptive plan? Maybe a little more personal. Have you ever known and been moved and been uh, by God's Spirit in your heart? I've got to share the gospel with this person. Now's the chance, and you did what a lot of us do. What'd you do? Opened up a book. Drink your coffee, look the other way. Was our failure to be moved by God into obedience going to derail God's redemptive purpose? Did He in heaven go, oh my goodness, I thought they were going to follow through. Now what do I do? No, see, God's determination and His stubbornness, if I can say it this way, is that which leads to certain victory, and He's merely calling us, because He is that awesome, to join with Him in obedience. Our power to serve and the fuel for service is the fact that His ways are always done. God will have the victory. God will have the victory in our lives and in this world. In fact, sometimes the victory he has in us is not what we expect, and sometimes what he's doing is much different than we would expect. But nonetheless, when we get to glory and we stand in his presence, all of us will say, okay, now I see what you were up to. 
now I see what was going on. You are good. You are faithful. God's uh, determination is the fuel and the source of our service for Him. It's not the reverse. We don't serve Him to get Him to have victory. We serve Him because He is already victorious. All right, last little section. Look with me, 2 Samuel 1. I shouldn't say 2. 2 Samuel 18, verse 1. When David heard word of what was going on, he came up with his plan. It was a very simple plan. He divided the forces he had with him, what little forces he had with him, into three contingents. One group was led by Joab, uh, the general. One was led up by Abishai, Joab's brother. And the other was led by Ittai, the Gittite, who was Philistine, but loyal to David. So David uh, puts together a pretty good plan, and he sends out his troops uh, into the forest of Ephraim. So the, the goal here is basically this. He is going to dispatch his troop in three contingents to try and divide Absalom's forces. Not only that, David, because he is setting the place of the battle because of the information he received uh, through the intelligence operators, he is going to establish the battle to occur in a forested area. Rather than fighting out in the open, he is going to take the battle into the forests of Ephraim, and the result is that the vast numbers of Absalom's troops are negated. It's going to be guerrilla warfare. And you can fight a much larger, larger force in the forest rather than out in the open. So David's plan was to conquer Absalom's force and get back on the throne. But we have to understand something. Just before all of the men walked out into the forest to take up their positions, he pleaded with his three leaders and said, Spare Absalom. Be careful with Absalom. Don't kill Absalom. Make sure everything's okay with Absalom. So we have to understand, even though David's plan was smart, even though it was militarily strategic, David's plan was to do just enough to get back on the throne. He, he wants to limit the damage. He wants to control the situation. Him and Absalom can work things out after he's back on the throne, but he wants to do just enough to, to protect Absalom and, and to get back on the throne. He wants to be in control of how this is going to work out. God has a different plan. God wants total and complete victory over those who had rebelled against him and his kingdom. He wants justice to be worked out in the life of Absalom. And he wants to demonstrate to David that God is in fact in charge and not David. So we see this down in 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 8. The battle spread out over the whole countryside. And the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. What this means is David's men were primarily working through hide-and-seek military warfare. Come and get me. Ten guys go in, none come out. They have no idea how many people they're fighting because of this guerrilla warfare tactic that his men were using. So all these people were being slaughtered in the forest. The forest devoured more than the sword. This is also the way the author here is letting us know who was in charge of this battle. David and his men? No, no, no. God is in charge of this battle. The trees weren't done having victory yet. Absalom, probably trying to work his way through this thickly forested wood, 
gets his large mane caught in a tree, a large oak tree, in fact. We, we probably have trees very similar to this all over the place. The forest devoured, and a tree captures Absalom. What brilliant tactician are you, David, that you have somehow managed to get the wooded landscape to join you in your battle? God had no intention of seeing justice sidestepped. Absalom deserved at this moment judgment, and Joab, maybe the only time in his life, does the right thing and kills Absalom in direct violation of David's orders. In spite of David's plan to do just enough and to protect the one who ought to die, God's purpose was done through David's plans and, in fact, in spite of David's plans. God had determined what would happen. God had determined the outcome. And as we've said numerous times before, his determination is more determined than even David's determination. There is no such thing for David or for us as being in a hopeless situation. There is no such thing as not having the necessary resources for service. And God is, in fact, the source of our victory. God has, in fact, in our lives, been calling us to serve Him since the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, God says this, God talking to man and woman, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over every living creature. What has God called us to do? Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth on His behalf. God has called us from the very beginning to serve us, uh, I should say serve Him, because He will give us all we need to be able to faithfully serve Him. The Bible in the New Testament tells us at least two things. In Ephesians 2, the Bible says... I'm going to have to read it. I was going to try and go from memory, and that's, that's always tragic. I don't want to commit heresy on purpose. If it's on accident, that's uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know what, what it is. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of, of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is David. He can't boast over his victory. God is the one who has the victory, just... Just like God has the victory in our life over sin, we trust Him for that. God has the victory uh, for David over the enemy forces. But in that salvation, in that redemption, God has called us to be saved and to accomplish His works. He says, since you have been redeemed, therefore you now can serve me redeemed. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Now that you have been saved and you will receive my Holy Spirit, buy a lazy boy and watch TV till you die. That's not what it says. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. He calls us, he says, You have been redeemed, so therefore go. No matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, God is determined for us. God has determined His will for us, and His will is good. Whether it's a hopeless situation or a good situation, God is determined to have His plan done through us, sometimes in spite of ourselves. Referencing the Apostle Paul again, here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
what should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Will any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. This is a determined God. This is God who is determined to redeem us through Christ. Because Jesus died and because He rose again, God has frustrated the plans of the enemy. Just as God determined to frustrate the plans of Ahithophel, through Christ, God has frustrated the plans of the enemy and the results of sin and the results of death. God determined to do this just because He's that good. He said, I'm going I'm to defeat your enemy, I'm going to overcome sin, and I am over, going to overcome death for you, and nothing will separate you from the love of God. And so as a result, we have hope, we have power, and in fact, we have victory. The Apostle Paul then challenges us over in Ephesians chapter 6. I'd apologize for having so many cross-references, but I don't feel bad about it, so it feels like I shouldn't apologize. Finally, be strong in the Lord and, listen, His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. That is, in His strength. God has determined in Christ to give us victory, and He's saying, in Christ, stand firm. The day of evil will come. Stand firm against your spiritual enemy, because he is already defeated. At the cross, Satan lost. Game, set, match, done, it's over. Jesus said it this way over in Matthew 12, 29. He said, no one invades a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. And then once you have done that, you can plunder his home. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm about to bind the strong man. I'm going to die on the cross. He's done. He's bound. He has no power over us. Since God is for us, that's his promise. And since he is determined to keep his promise to us, His determination for us and in us is more than any other determination, including our own. You do not remain in Christ because you are determined to remain in Christ. You remain in Christ because He has determined to keep you. We have hope, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, because Christ is determined to keep us. We have power to serve Him because Christ is determined to see His will done in and through us. And in fact, we are ensured of the victory in Christ. 
God is determined, so we have hope, we have power, and we will have victory. Just one or two more references, and by that I mean 12. Um, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, what? A list of religious obligations. Now, we come to church to get those. I, shouldn't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us to enter relationship with him by his power, and because he is determined to redeem us, he's calling us to trust him, and he's in fact calling us to serve him, knowing that faithfulness to him is actually rest. Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy, my yoke is light. But we have to remember something about that. What is it? There is, in fact, a yoke. He didn't say, I don't have a yoke, and you get to do whatever you want. He's saying, come into my service because of my determination and my power and my uh, sovereignty, and I will give you something to do that at the end of your days you will say, well, that was a rest. That was peace. That was power that came from another source, and it wasn't me. Jesus told a parable over in Luke, chapter 19, and it's a parable of a king who established a kingdom, and he, after he established his kingdom, gave out some assignments. He gave out minas, which is money. Gave one guy ten minas, another guy a certain number of minas. They each got a bit of mina. More mina, more problems. He goes away and he comes back and the first servant says, uh, I have ten minas and I have turned them into ten more. And then the, the king says to him, well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Okay, a mina is maybe three months wages. So this guy maybe, in the course of time, who knows how long he was gone, he earned enough money for an average worker to stay alive for 30 months, what, two and a half, three years, right? And what does the master give him upon returning? Not two and a half to three months or years worth of wages. What does he give him? Ten cities. Somebody needs to explain to this king the profit and loss ratio of that situation. But what Jesus is communicating here is I want you to serve me in my power, I want you to serve me for my purposes. I want you to serve me because I am determined to use you, and the result is going to be I will reward my faithfulness to you. I will be faithful in you and through you, and I will accomplish all that I've called you to do, and in your faithfulness, to rest on my faithfulness, I will then bestow upon you reward. We must remember when we step into glory and see what Christ has done for us, our first response will be, I think, okay, now I get it. Our second response will be this. This is too much. Yeah, no, 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 this is too much. God, you went over the top. This is embarrassing. This is, I mean, I mean that's what we're going to be. We're going to say, what, really this? And that's what Jesus is communicating to us. 
He's saying, because I have determination that cannot be swayed. I am that determined that you have hope and you have power and you will have victory. Just a couple of things to think about by way of closing. When you think about your Christian life, maybe you are like many of us. You feel like your Christian life is stalled out. You're not sure where God is. Perhaps you're drugged down by persistent sin or discouragement. You feel discouraged because you don't know if you have what it takes to be faithful to Christ. In fact, our hope is not in your ability to find faithfulness in yourself. Your hope is found in your ability to trust that Christ is faithful. And in the midst of that, he's not merely trying to get you from here to the grave to heaven. He wants to give you, through his faithfulness, his power to serve him to accomplish His purposes in in His ways. He wants to soften our heart to trust Him that He will, in fact, give us the ability to overcome sin. He will, in fact, give us, us the ability to experience joy in the midst of trial. He wants to give us the power and the trust in Him to know that God will do His will in us because He is determined to do so. And God has determined to give you His victory. If God has determined to give you victory in Christ, the question you have to ask yourself then, what should I do? If the win is guaranteed, what do I do? How do I express faith through action given the fact that God is going to give me victory? What is God calling you to do that you're resisting because you think you're going to fail? You might, He won't. In your family, perhaps you have found a place of hopelessness and despair with conflict and stress and parenting, and you wonder, perhaps, will it ever get better? Is Christ alive? I can't tell. Are you convinced? Is Christ alive? If God can raise the dead, if God can raise God from the dead, He can raise a marriage from the dead. Christ is alive and we can find our hope in Him, not because uh, our circumstances change, but because God is faithful even in the midst of struggle. How can I, in the midst of difficulty, and how can you, in the midst of difficulty, even a marriage, find Christ's power to serve? How can we humbly serve our spouse and humbly serve our children and our parents? How can we look for ways to engage in encouragement and love? And trust that God will do it. God will give us the victory and the power to uh, see His work done in our marriages, in our family. If God has promised that in your marriage that He will uh, show Himself faithful and the victory is certain, what are you going to do? I'm going to see if things work out. The question is, do we trust Him that the victory is in fact certain? That he will, in fact, do his will and his purpose when we pursue him. Finally, in our service to Christ, do we ever wonder if we have anything to offer God or his kingdom? Do I matter? Can God actually use someone like me? Again, let's just ask this question and make sure we remember the right answer. Is Christ alive? If God can raise God from the dead, can he use us? Absolutely. So we find hope not in ourselves, but in God's power and Christ's faithfulness. 
how can I, in trusting God who raised Christ from the dead, God Himself raised from the dead, how can I trust that God can overcome my fear and overcome my doubt and give me a willingness to be bold and use the gifts and abilities I do have to serve His kingdom? Perhaps God has been moving in your heart to serve in a particular way and you resist. What if I fail? What if I'm not that good at it? I'm going to let you in on a secret. Don't tell anybody. It's just for us. You will fail. You're not that good at it. And thank the Lord that's not what is necessary. We're going to trust the one who never fails. And we're going to trust the one who is perfect at it. Paul said it this way in Corinthians. God uses weakness that he might be most glorified. So if God has determined to use you in precisely the way you are and the way he has made you, to accomplish His purpose in victory, if victory is certain in what God has called you to do for the kingdom, what will you do? If victory is certain, what will you do? Will you bide your time looking into the eastern uh, sky waiting for the return of Christ? Or when He returns, will He find you faithfully doing what He has called you to do, whether successfully or not? but trusting in His faithfulness and His power. God is determined. And that is an encouragement to us in the midst of trouble. It's an encouragement to us to be power, empowered to serve. And it's an encouragement to us to know that His victory is certain. There is no determination as determined as God's determination. 